Okay, good evening, everybody. Good evening. Okay, because we're excited to be back. This is our first Wednesday night cheer ever in Parshas Gracious. So, looking forward to this. Special thank you to Isaac Romano for being the captain and setting everything up behind the scenes and in front of the scene, and to everyone else who is helpful in uh, getting things together. And a special thank you, as always, to Tor Anytime for sharing this class as well as many, many others with those who are not able to be here. The topic this evening is, does God really care about this? We're going to explore the first philosophical debate in history. So who is that machlokus between? Cain and Hevel. Cain and Abel. Now, as a disclaimer... Even when the shear is finished, likely we're not going to walk out of here feeling, yes, finally, Baruch Hashem, we have now mastered the discussion between Cain and Hevel, and we know all the deepest secrets of this portion of the Torah. That's not going to happen. But the goal is to get a little bit more of an insight, a little bit deeper as to what exactly was this conflict, what was the, uh, the different worldviews between Cain and Hevel, and what can we take for ourselves in expanding our own Avodah Hashem and our perception of life in a Kaddish Baruch? The, uh, the first grade understanding of the story is the Torah starts off with sibling rivalry. You have brothers, and there's jealousy, and there's rage, and then Cain can't contain himself, so he kills his brother. He's a murderer. And that's pretty much the end of the story. Let's read through some of these verses together and try to decipher what's going on. In the course of time, Cain brought to Hashem a mincha, an offering, from the fruits of the ground. And then Hevel also brought from the best of his flock and from their fats, the Yisha Hashem El Hevel Ve'el Minchaso. And Hashem turned, or he accepted, Hevel and his offering. Ve'el Kayin Ve'el Minchaso Losha, but to Kayin and to his offering, Hashem did not pay heed. And Cain was very distressed by this, and his face fell. So the first person in history, according to the Torah itself, Chazal teaches that Adam Harishon also brought a carbon. But the first one we read about in the Psukim of the Torah is Cain. Cain has this breakthrough. I'm going to bring a carbon to Hashem. <clears throat> Hevel likes the idea, so Hevi Gamhu, he also brings a carbon to Hashem. Only difference is the description of what that offering was. With Hevel mi sono, from the best. And Cain, there's no mention that it came from the best. He just he, uh, got some fruits together. Maybe it was flax, maybe it was something else, and he brought it to Hashem. So it seems like Cain was very depressed. And Hashem says to Cain, Why are you down? 
Velama naflu panecha. Why has your face fallen? Hello, Imtitev says, if you go in the right direction, se'es, from the expression, you will uplift yourself. Not just you'll be okay, but if you somehow struggle through this and you pick yourself up, se'es, you will be in a higher level than you were before. Vimlo tete, but if you don't rectify this, you don't go in the right direction, lepesachatas rovates, then sin is crouching at the door, ve'elecha tishukoso, and you will have a strong desire towards it, Vata tim shalbo, but you have the ability to conquer it. So Hashem is speaking to Cain, and He's giving him words of encouragement. This could be the game changer of your life. This could bring you to a madrega that you would never think of achieving. Just have the right focus. Keep your eye on the ball. You could do this. It's true, you'll have a strong desire taking you in the wrong direction. But you can overcome. Cain said to Hevel, his brother, dot, 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 doesn't say what that conversation was. And then when they were in the field together, Cain got up against his brother Hevel and he killed him. And then Hashem says to Cain, Where is Hevel your brother? The famous phrase, I don't know, he says to Hashem. Am I my brother's keeper? Rashi explains, obviously Hashem knew where Cain was. He was asking where Hevel was, but he was asking Cain to give him an opening. I want to hear you say, you know what? Ah, I made a mistake. Even after killing his brother, Hashem wanted to give that Pesach, that opportunity, that Cain could say, Chatosi, I sinned, please forgive me. And it sounds like if he would have done so, Hashem would have forgiven him. So Hashem says to Cain, what have you done? The bloods of your brother are crying out from the ground. The bloods meaning according to one interpretation of Rashi, not just him, but all of the future generations are crying out in pain. You killed them all. So to start from the beginning, it sounds like Cain was cheap. I don't want to bring from the best of my sheep. I'll bring from the scrawny ones. When you think about it, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It's one thing, listen, there's a ton of competition, and if I give some of my good stuff, I'm not going to have the schorah, I'm not going to have the, 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 the wonderful, fluffy, fat sheep to sell. How many sheep did he have in his possession? <coughs> 800 million, right? The whole world was his. He was the roa, he was the shepherd. So what are you doing? So it sounds there's got to be more going on than just he was cheap. Um, no one corrected me. Nobody corrected me. Yaakov Seltzer, I was waiting for a correction. I was going to say something. Why don't you say something? I was going to say something. I was waiting for you. Okay. Okay. He was not the shepherd. He worked the ground. 
right? He didn't bring from the sheep, thank you. He was bringing from the produce. So how much produce does he have? Let's, let's try this again, right? 800 million. 800 million. He's got everything in the world. So why are you being stingy? Just bring the good stuff. Bring your best fruits. There's got to be more going on. And the Ramban explains that when Cain had this idea, this insight to bring a carbon, to somehow bring an offering to Hashem, it was based on, on, on an understanding of the deepest Kabbalah. He was able to tap into the most mystical, deep understandings of why and how and what a carbon does. Something that's so foreign to the modern mind. Bringing an offering to God. What does that do? How does that bring me closer? But Cain got it. He was the Mechadesh. He brought this insight into the world. Rabbi Isaac Sher points out, Rabbi Isaac Sher was the great Rosh Hashiv in Slobodka. He says, from the fact that Hashem was speaking to Cain, that itself means that he was probably a pretty impressive person. How many times in the Torah does it say, Vayomer Hashem El Esav? We don't find that. If Hashem is communicating with Kayan, that means he's a Navi, he's a prophet. And if the only reason he was upset, explains with Isaac Sher, was because he was jealous of his brother, sibling rivalry, so then why does Hashem waste his time, so to speak, to, to encourage him? Get over it! Grow up! Okay, we all have jealousy. But you don't need Hashem for that. It must be that his, that his depression, right, his face falling, was not just because he was jealous of his brother. It was something so much deeper. He wanted shleimus. He wanted to be complete. He wanted to come closer to Hashem. That was the whole desire. He was the first one to think of this avenue of coming closer to Hashem. And Hashem didn't accept my, my, my carbon. So it's not that I'm jealous of my brother. It's not a base kinah. It's something so, so lofty. I want to reach shleimus. I want wholesomeness. I want perfection. And I see that from the fact Hashem didn't accept my carbon, I must be missing something. And like the Ramchal tells us, for those who are striving tr for truth, for people who have devoted their lives to get closer to God, when I realize, when I become aware that there's basic things lacking within my midos, within my mitzvos, that eats me up. That's what was bothering Cain. How many times did Hashem communicate with Shlomo HaMelech, right, the great King Solomon? Twice. And Chazal used that as an, as an indication to the greatness of King Solomon. How many times did Hashem communicate with Cain? So before he killed his brother, he gave him encouragement. And even after he killed his brother, Hashem is still wanting that relationship. He's trying to give him that opening to say, Chatasi, confess, I want to I be close with you. So Cain was clearly a very lofty, very accomplished, very special person. It wasn't just rage, it wasn't just jealousy. What was that conversation, though, that took place between Cain and Hebel? And there's a tar Targum Yerushalmi that 
gives us a little bit of that back and forth. This is source number five. Starts off by telling us what Cain said to Hevel. Less den less dayin. There's no judgment in the world, and there's no judge. Veles alma ochren, velolimetan agratavlet sedekaya, and there's no next world. There's no continuity of the neshama, and there's no reward for righteousness. Veloli is paramin rishaya, and there's no punishment for the wicked. And here's a very puzzling line. And the world wasn't created with love. How many times do you hear that when you're having a back and forth, an argument with somebody? The world wasn't created with love. It sounds like Cain was saying, one more line, nor is it guided with love. So, Cain was a Navi. He was a prophet. Hashem spoke with him. So that means they were living in a world that we'll never imagine. They were living in a universe of such clarity, of such recognition, of such awareness of the Ein Sof, of the infinite creator. It's something that we would only dream of having this much of. And they were living in that reality. How in the world does Cain say to his brother, there's no judgment, there's no judge, there's no nitzchias, there's no eternity of the neshama, there's no reward or punishment, and the world's not created with love, and the world is not guided with love. Where is that coming from, and how does such a man say such a thing? Hevel answers back to Cain, according to the Targum Yerushalmi, and we find the same, very similar conversation in the Targum Yonasan. He says, Is din is dayin, I disagree. There is justice, and there is a judge in the world. And there is the eternity of the neshama, we live forever. And there is reward for the tzaddikim. And there is punishment for the rishayim. And the world was created with love, with compassion. And Hashem guides and controls and orchestrates our reality with compassion as well. So we get a little bit of an insight into what this debate was. This was the last conversation Cain and Hevel had before Cain killed Hevel. But where is Cain coming from? How could he possibly be thinking such apicorsis, such heresy, when he's living in a world of such clarity? So in order to try to understand a little better this conflict between Cain and Hevel, I want to take a step back and try to understand what is the purpose of mitzvos. Baruch Hashem, we have many mitzvos to do. Hashem wanted to give us so much schusim, so He gave us so many mitzvos. What is the basic goal of the mitzvos? So we know the Ramchal tells us it's all part of a plan. Why did Hashem create the world? The real answer is, we have no clue. Right? To get into the mind of the infinite, Boreolam, we have no clue. There's a lot going on. The one thing that we know from Chazal, and the one thing that we know from logic, 
is that clearly it's not about Hashem. Hashem didn't create this reality because He needed something. By definition, when you are infinite and you are eternal and you are outside time and space, there's no such thing as a chisaron, there's no void, there's no lacking. So olam chesed yebaneh, the one thing we know is that the world, at least in our reality, was created as an expression of chesed. Life is a gift. What is that gift? What is the goal? is to get the ultimate pleasure from clinging to Hashem. to bask in the radiance of the Shekhinah. Those are the words of the, Mar- of the Ramchal. Okay. However, there's one caveat that we have to go through Olam Hazeh. We have to have a finite existence first. Kedei Lehagia in order to get to this expansive, limitless relationship with Hashem. What is the point of this finite reality? Because you have to do something here. We'll use very basic expressions. We have to earn the good. We have to somehow acquire it in a way where it's not just given to us, it's not bestowed upon us, but I'm creating a receptacle, I'm becoming more worthy of that good. What are the means to achieving this ultimate end? These are the mitzvos. So it's all about that eternal relationship of pleasure and vacus and connection with the infinite, with the Kodesh Baruch Hu. And somehow, in the, in the wisdom of Hashem, the way He orchestrated life was, we need to do mitzvos to get there. Mitzvos are a means, and the relationship, at least in its full expression, that's the end. But how do the mitzvos work? What exactly am I doing? Obviously, every mitzvah has its own unique goal, its own agenda. But... How am I somehow coming closer and creating more of this, this is more of this connection that will lead me to that end goal? So I want to share with you, this is a famous story you've all heard of, but I think it's one of the most powerful analogies to what it means to be doing mitzvos in this reality and what we're gaining through the mitzvos. She was born on June 27th, 1880 in Alabama. Her father, he spent many years as an editor. He was also a captain in the Confederate Army. When Helen was 19 months old, she contracted an unknown illness, which is assumed to have been some kind of scarlet fever or meningitis. And although Baruch Hashem, she recovered, but the illness left her both deaf and blind. This is Helen Keller. She recalls in her autobiography, right, she was able to remember the fuzz, the, the fog of life after the illness. And her words were, I was at sea in a dense fog. And then when she was seven years old, her entire life changed forever. There's a 20-year-old, Anne Sullivan. She herself was visually impaired. And she became Helen's instructor. 
This was the beginning of a 49-year-long relationship, which was life-changing for Helen Keller, and was really life-changing for the entire world to see what a human being could accomplish. It was March 5th, 1887. That was a day, in Helen Keller's own words, that she called the birthday of my soul. That's when she met Anne Sullivan. First day she gets there, Anne gives her a doll, a little present, and she tries to teach her immediately how to communicate the words by spelling in sign language in little Helen's hand, D-O-L-L. She was frustrated at first because she had no idea what was going on. She just felt somehow her hand being manipulated. And as this progressed, right, someone's always on top of me, and she's touching me, and she's pushing, and she's prodding. There was one time she had a mug in her hand, and Anne was trying to teach her, M-U-G is mug, and she was so frustrated, she took it and she broke it. But soon, what she did is, she began to imitate Sullivan's hand gestures. And she also recalls in her autobiography, I did not know what I was spelling, spelling a word or even that words existed. I was simply making my fingers go in monkey-like imitation. Right, so here I am living in fog, and I have no clue what's happening, and I have no idea what this thing is pushing and prodding me, but somehow after a while I keep on doing those motions that are almost forced upon me. Helen's breakthrough in communication came the next month. And she realized that the motion her teacher was making on the palm of her hand while running cool water over her other hand was actually symbolic of the word water. In her autobiography, again, she recalls, and this is such a, just, just a picture yourself in her shoes for a moment. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon my, the motions of her fingers. Suddenly I felt the misty consciousness as of something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought. And somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. The living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, set it free. That was her freedom. 1904, at the age of 24... Keller graduated as a member of Phi Beta Kappa, and she became the first deaf-blind person to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree. She went on, as we all know, to be really a world-renowned author and a speaker as well. I think this is one of the most powerful analogies to understanding what mitzvos are here to do. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, right? There's a famous picture of Helen Keller sitting on Anne Sullivan's lap. This is the first picture they have. And she's about seven years old. She's sitting there with the doll, and Anne Sullivan is right there with her palm in her hand. So we're sitting there in Hashem's lap. He's got his palm in our hand, so to speak, and he's making these different gestures. And so many of them make no sense. But we're imitating them. We're going through the motions. What is the goal of the mitzvos? It's to set us free. It's to awaken us to a whole different world of communication, of relationship, 
of consciousness that we can never attain if we were stuck in that fog, in that mist of the sea. That's the goal of mitzvahs. And the Malbim says this on Tehillim. We sang this Pasuk on Simchas Torah. Pekudi Hashem Yisharim The mitzvahs of Hashem are yosher, they're correct, and therefore they bring me joy. Mitzvahs Hashem bara, the mitzvahs of Hashem enlighten. They bring light to the eyes. They bring clarity and light to the eyes. Explains the Malbim. Mitzvah Hashem bara. What does it mean they bring clarity? Every mitzvah has its own tam, its own unique reason or methodology. To be able to straighten the mind, to help us with our hashkafah sachayim, creating our worldview. Gaining Das Torah, understanding a little bit of the Das Elyon, the mind of Hashem. Vigam hi and the mitzvahs also enlighten the eyes. Shehei explains the Malbim, that's referring to our midos, to refine who I am, to help me work on my anger and my jealousy and my frustration, to help me become more godlike, to be more selfless, to be more of a giver. The mitzvos enable us to climb out of our base selves into a whole new consciousness. That's the goal of the mitzvos. This idea is expressed by Shlomo HaMelech in Mishlei. He writes, Kol imras surufa. Every word of God is pure. Magein hu bo. It's a shield to those who take refuge in him. What does it mean that every word of God is pure and it's a shield, it's somehow a protection? As the Medrash Rabbah says, in this one line in Mishlei, Shlomo HaMelech is telling us the purpose of mitzvos. Lo nosnu ha-mitzvos, ela litzareif behem es The mitzvos were only given for one purpose and one purpose only, which is litzareif, which means to purify. It's used if you have metal and there's imperfections there and there's schmutz. By going through the process of purification, you're getting rid of all of the other things and you're making gorgeous metal. Lo nosnu ha mitzvos ele litzareif behem es To refine and to make perfect humanity. That's the goal of the mitzvos. The Ramban elaborates on this idea. And he writes in Parsha's Kisese, he says, don't think for a second that any mitzvah we do is for Hashem. And the Chazal we just quoted gives an example that says, the mitzvah of Shechita, we're commanded to shecht an animal in a particular way. Do you think God really cares how you slaughter the animal? Is it Shechita from the neck? Is it going to smack the animal over the, the top of the, the back of the neck? You think God really cares? Rather, clearly, it's for us. Somehow every mitzvah is teaching me something. Now I have to explore what that means, that God doesn't really care. That kind of is counterintuitive. God gave the mitzvahs. We would assume they're not arbitrary. The Ramban goes on to quote the Pasuk. We say, (laughs) We say, 
that Hashem commanded to do all of the mitzvahs for what purpose? Le'yires Hashem elokeinu, to have reverence of Hashem. Why? Letov lonu kol hayamim, for our benefit, for our whole life. It's for us. The mitzvahs are for humanity to get us out of that fog and to create and expand consciousness. So how does God feel about this? We're going over this broad discussion of the purpose of the mitzvahs. Does God have emotions? By a show of hands, would you say God has emotions? Those who say no, raise your hand. Those who say yes. Okay, so it's kind of a catch-22. It's a hard question. Because on one hand, like, well, what does that mean? God has emotions. How would, you, how would you understand that? On the other hand, if there's nothing emotional about God, how am I supposed to have any relationship with a celestial robot? And we hear all these, uh, Ava, the Vekas, and how do I feel anything towards something that has no feelings? Let's read the Rambam together. The Rambam towards the first chapter, the end of the first chapter in Yisodeh HaTorah writes, once we've clarified that Hashem has no goof, has no body, and has no attributes of anything physical, so then, by definition, there's no such thing as Aliyah or Yerida, Hashem ascending or coming down, Hashem's right or left, Hashem's front or back, all of these things make no sense. Hashem doesn't sit or stand. Hashem is not found within time. There's no such thing as Hashem changing because change is always based on time. Why am I in this mood right now, but now I'm in a different mood three minutes later? The answer is it's three minutes later and I'm in a different place. But if a Kodesh Baruch Hu is outside of time and space... So everything is. Hashem doesn't change, writes the Rambam. There's no such thing as foolishness or even wisdom when you speak about God in the same way we use wisdom with human beings. The classic human chachma cannot apply to the divine. Anger or laughter... Simcha and atzvus, joy and depression, all of these things have no place in a conversation about Hashem. Lo shtika v'lo dibor, kedibor b'nei adam. Hashem is not silent, nor does Hashem speak, at least in the way that we speak. All of these things, writes the Rambam, are true because Hashem is eno guf, nothing physical, nothing bound by time or space. None of these things apply. You might be bothered by the question, but we have so many places throughout Tanakh where it speaks about Hashem's emotions. Hashem getting angry. Hashem being jealous. Hashem rejoicing. How do you understand any of these psukim? So famously the Rambam says, Hakol Mashal Malitza. It's all allegorical. It's all metaphorical. Don't take anything at face value when it speaks about God's outstretched arm, that no one would dare take at face value, but also don't take at face value any description of an emotion when it comes to a Kaddish Baruch. The Rambam concludes, all of these things, 
physical movement or emotional capacity. They're only applicable to people like us. The human beings, we live in a physical world, we're trapped in time and space, and we have flaws, we have chesronos. But Hashem, none of that stuff applies. So it would make sense, and again, we have to analyze the Rambam carefully because this is sometimes misquoted and misunderstood. But it would seem to imply that whether or not we choose to sin and disobey and ignore the Torah, or we choose to embrace the mitzvos and do as many of them as we possibly can, does Hashem care? No, like the Chazal said, you think I care, you shecht an animal? I'm telling you to do it for you. It makes no difference to me. Job said this, Pasuk and Eov, Im matifelbo. If you sin, what does it do to God? Why are you going to hurt his feelings? And even if you have a life of rebellion, what's it going to do to him? You're going to hurt his self-esteem? God doesn't need you. And the scary thing is, now the opposite. And if you act righteously, what are you giving him? You think he feels good because he said a bracha? Right? He's davening so nicely. Right? Baruch Hashem. Hashem probably wouldn't say Baruch Hashem. Right? <laughs> what are you giving him? What does Hashem say when you say, how are you doing? Right. Baruch Hashem. What? Baruch Hashem. Huh? Maybe. <laughs> so it sounds like what we're doing, Averos, we're not listening to Hashem, making many mistakes, or even if I'm doing mitzvos, what are you giving Hashem? And the Malbim says, this is based on the philosophy of the Rambam, that all of the emotions that we have, we can't attribute to God. You can't attribute those to God. And that means even if my whole life is spent trying to disprove your existence, trying to take the masses away from your service, trying to make fun and trample upon your religion, says the Malbim, not only did you not touch Hashem, even what you did is not even a pagam, doesn't take away from any honor or respect of God. Doesn't faze him at all. This could give us more understanding. Now, the, the goal of this conversation so far is to hopefully thoroughly confuse us. <laughs> So if you're watching at home, please don't stop the video now. But this might give an insight into the halacha. The halacha in the Gemara and Shavuot says that if you want to bring an offering, an ola, an elevation offering to come closer to Hashem, so you have three choices. You could bring a behema, a large animal that's very expensive. And if you do so, what does the Torah say? Reach nichoach. It's a pleasing fragrance to God. You could also bring a bird, a lot cheaper. And if you do so, what does the Pasuk say? Reach nichoach. It's a pleasing fragrance to God. And if you want to be really stingy, you bring a mincha, right? Some flour from California, organic spelt. But whatever you want to do, you bring that, and that's a lot cheaper. And again, reach nichoach. It's all good. Hashem says, mmm, 
delicious. I love that smell. Meaning to say, I am so moved or I appreciate your service. Says the Gemara, and this is such a big, big concept. Melamed, we learn from here, she'echad hamarba ve'echad hamamit. Doesn't make a difference if it's a lot or if it's a little. What's the main factor? Bilvad she'echavein es libo lo'oviv she'bishemayim. As long as you're machavein, as long as your intentions are, I want to be totally devoted to Hashem, then whatever you could afford, whatever you could bring, if it's a big animal, if it's some flower, HaKadosh Baruch says, I love it all. It's all good. I remember reading a story. This was uh, popular back in the day, and it still is in many circles. Sometimes, if you're a chassid, you'll travel to spend the yontif with, your, with the Rebbe. So there was one particular fellow, this is going back probably more than a century, living someplace in Europe, and his Rebbe was the Ger Rebbe. So he would travel whenever he could to the city of Ger, and he'd spend the yontif together with the Rebbe. He would always bring him something very nice. Right? One year he saved money and he brought him a nice kiddush cup and the next year was a nice challah cover. He'd always bring him something. The Rebbe obviously didn't need this guy's kiddush cup. He had a lot of his own fancy silver but he would accept it and you know, show him that he was just appreciative to have him there. So it was Hanukkah time and the weather was terrible. He's trying to find some wagon driver to bring him to wherever he was living, to, to the city of Ger, which was a good couple days journey. And nobody wanted to take him. So eventually he found some guy who was asking for a lot of money. But in, in this man's head, you know, to spend the yontif with the Rebbe, I don't want to let that go. And this time he bought him this elaborate, gorgeous, very expensive silver menorah. So he had the menorah with him on the wagon, a couple of things he was taking along as well. And they're going together, and it's raining, and there's thunder and lightning, and they get to this lake. At this point, the lake was pretty much frozen, but it didn't look solid frozen. The wagon driver, not being scared of much, decided, listen, this is the fastest way, it'll be a shortcut, might save us, you know, 10, 12 hours. So he went on the frozen lake. As the horse is going, uh, the person sitting there, he's hearing some cracking of the ice. He's getting nervous. And then at one point, the ice caves in, and the horse starts to struggle. The whole wagon turns over. He finds himself in this freezing water, trying to struggle for his life, gasping for breath. Finally, somehow, he's able to pull himself up, and tragically, he sees wagon, the horse, and the horse driver all perished, gone. So he's feeling terrible, he's feeling guilty, and he's freezing cold. He finds his way to the house of the Gerebbe literally a couple of hours before the onset of Hanukkah. And he realizes, obviously, he lost his menorah. So he comes in to see the Rebbe, and he says, you should know, I, I had such a beautiful menorah for the Rebbe, I wanted to give it to you. Rebbe was smiling. It's so good to see you, Herschel. I'm so sorry to hear about you know, the terrible journey and the tragedy. He said, but I want to give the Rebbe something. So he sees that there's some bulge in his pocket. Says, what do you have in your pocket? Herschel looks around. He finds this soggy 
disgusting sandwich. And the Rebbe says, that looks gishmak. Right? Would you want to share that with me? <laughs> How could I give this soggy sandwich to the Rebbe? No, 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 we'll eat it together. We'll have it as a part of the suda for Hanukkah. I said, okay. Takes the sandwich. And there are many chassidim there. And they're about ready to light. It's in a warm house. And he tells Herschel, he says, I love this as much as anything else you'll bring me. Because I love you. And it's really the thought that counts. So Kaddish Baruch Hu says the exact same thing. Do you think I care if it's a big animal or if it's a bird or if it's some flower? If it's, you're machaving the shame shemaim, you're doing this because you're trying to get close to me, I appreciate it all the same. Is there any benefit in bringing a nicer, bigger offering? Explains the Ritva and others. The benefit is not for Hashem, but rather it's, it's for me. When I'm bringing something that's expensive, that's a real sacrifice of money, time, or effort, so then I'm viewing this mitzvah, I'm viewing this, this sacrifice, I'm viewing this connection in a whole different way. It means something more to me. It's chashib, it's important. Explains Reb Moshe Feinstein, and we find a similar approach in the Sam Derech, the great Reb Simcha Brody, he was the Hashiva of Hebron. What was Kayan thinking? Was he cheap? Right? He was stingy, and what they're going to bring from the, the Shvacha fruits? He held, philosophically speaking, I'm only going to bring Minhagrua from the fruits that are not so nice. For what purpose? Because I understand, and Kayan understood this better than anybody sitting in this room, anyone on this planet. Kayan understood the vastness of the universe, the grandeur of the Boreolam. And in his assessment, why in the world would a Kaddish Baruch Hu care what I give him? He knew the Gemara in Shavuos. It could be a behemoth, it could be a bird, it could be anything. And therefore, I don't want to give off the impression and I think it's flawed philosophically to give off the impression that I'm doing something nice because a nice fruit makes for a difference. Why would he even be concerned about that? Would you really think that anyone would make the mistake that God cares about the nice fruit more than the, the dried one or the, the spoiled apple? And here's what Hermosha Feinstein says. And this is a breakthrough into the mind of Cain. And I think we could all relate to this. Cain knew. He knew the Ritva. He knew that the only reason I should bring something nice is the emotional impact it will have on me. Does Hashem care about my emotions? Does Hashem care about my feelings towards this carbon? He was living in a reality where it was just there's truth and there's sheker. I want to do what's right. And there's no way, I can't believe in the vastness of the universe and the grandeur and the majestic nature of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, that he would care for a moment about my feelings. I just want to serve God. And therefore, I don't want to bring something that will make me feel better. It's not about feelings. It's about service. He knew the Kabbalistic, the Sodos, 
the, the secrets of a carbon. That's all he had in mind. Nothing emotional. Please take the emotion and bring it off the table. This is about truth. What was Cain missing? What was his hate? What was his mistake? Was he just an evil, jealous guy? No. He was a very, very, very hush of person. He was a Navi. He was a prophet. The mistake was that HaKadosh Baruch Hu cares deeply about our emotions. Hashem wants my heart. Rachmana Liba boy. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I want the Hargasha. I want you to feel it. Cain didn't get that. Cain thought it wasn't because he had a, a tiny little glimpse of clarity. It's because he had too much clarity. He assumed God didn't care about emotion. And that's why he said to his brother, Lisdin v'lisdayin, you think Hashem is nitpicking in all these things within our own little lives? Of course I believe in a creator of the universe. He spoke to me. I know him well. But, but you don't have this system where he really is analyzing my thoughts and my feelings. He's got better things to be taken care of. He has galaxies to build and, and light years and light years of different things going on in Malachim. He doesn't care about me. Velo birachmin isbari alma. The world was not created with compassion. The world was not made out of love. Hashem doesn't have these emotions. It's just about truth. It's about reality. Hashem's not emotional. And if you think so, you're greatly underestimating the divine. Hevel, you're an apikoris. You're a heretic. Don't you get the grandeur of God? That was the philosophy of Cain. Hashem doesn't orchestrate and lead and guide things with compassion and love. There's no love with God. God is a celestial robot. We can't touch Him, but we can serve Him. Who was correct? Was Cain right or was Hevel right? Seems like Hevel was right. So, to understand this debate, what was Hevel's thinking? Why does God want our emotion? If nothing matters to him anyway, if the mitzvahs don't make a difference to him, if whether or not we obey has no impact on his self-esteem, so why do you want my hargasha? Why do you want my heart? Why do you care how I feel? And here's the answer. God cares deeply more than we'll ever imagine about feelings, not just when I'm depressed and when I can't get out of bed and I can't function or when I'm exuberant. The little nuances, the subtleties, things that we ourselves don't even pick up unconsciously. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, because of the greatness and the grandeur and the majestic nature of the Ein Sof, every tiny thing when it comes to a human being, when it comes to our neshama, when it comes to the turmoil of our lives, everything is huge. Everything makes a difference. But what do you mean? We have all these sources that say God doesn't care. And those were all supportive of Kain's philosophy. How would Hevel interpret the Rambam? How would Hevel interpret all of the different chazal? It's not about me, says Hashem. I don't care what you do. The answer is, God says, it's not about me, and I don't care at all, from a personal standpoint. 
Nothing you do is to stroke my ego. And if you choose to daven or if you choose not to daven, it's not going to hurt my feelings. Trust me. But the reason I care deeply is I care deeply about you. The Rambam never said that love, infinite love, doesn't exist when we speak about Hashem. Does Hashem have emotions? The answer is yes and no. Emotions based on human frailty, like jealousy and anger and low self-esteem, things that we all struggle with, of course those things cannot apply to God. The infinite ain't so. But there are other emotions, right? We speak about the 13 attributes of God. They're emotions that are not based on chisarun. They're not coming from any, any lacking or any void. They're an expression of shlemus. They're the living reality of wholesomeness. Love does not come from void. Love is wholesomeness. Selflessness is truth. These are emotions that of course Hashem has. You can't say Hashem has, but Hashem is. Hashem is love. Hashem is selflessness. Hashem created the world to give, to be mative, to bestow good. Nothing is for Hashem. It's all for us. Those emotions Hashem has, the Ramam would say, we can't picture those either though, because they're in such a different league, it's a different currency. Currency. We can't fathom what God's love is. We can think of the greatest love in our life. We can think of a moment in time or a relationship where we felt so much of this strong ava towards a child or towards a parent or towards a spouse. But, but that's not what God's love is. Hashem's love is, is infinite. But Hashem definitely has love. Hashem cares deeply not because Himself, but because He cares deeply about us. And this is why we quoted this before in the Joshua. When Hashem tells Moshe to recap, go through all of the places that the Jewish people traveled in the desert, right? Right here to the edge of Claudius to Eretz Yisrael, and remind them of all of the times they disobeyed me. And what's the analogy? The analogy is a father is trying to take care of his child, his son, and he's very ill. And they travel together and they finally get to the right place, the right hospital, the right doctor, and he's treated, he has a refuah shalema. And as they're going back together, they're looking at all the different places they stayed along the way. And the father says, remember, David, we stayed over here, you had that terrible migraine. And remember, we were over here, we crossed the bridge together, and you were suffering so much, you had that fever that was just eating you alive. Remember that? That's the marshal, that's the analogy. When Hashem tells Moshe, remember all the places that Klal Yisrael sinned, it's the same thing as a father telling his child, I remember all the places you were hurting so badly. That's a strange metaphor. This is, a, this is places where Klal Yisrael angered God, right? No. God doesn't get angry in the same way that we get angry. When we disobey, when we ignore, when we throw away the mitzvot, when we choose to stay in the fog that Helen Keller was in until she was seven years old, when we choose that lifestyle, Hashem isn't mad in the same way that we get mad. Hashem feels the pain. He's in need of refuah. He needs to be helped. I'm not taking this personally. You're not going to say a bracha? Okay, I'll get over it. But, but, but I want you to say a bracha because I want you. I want you to break out of that fog. I want you to have more of that consciousness. <clears throat> 
Whenever we do say a bracha, this could be an opportunity, and we have many of these per day, to think about the philosophy of Hevel. Baruch atah Hashem. You, Hashem, are the source of bracha. When you think about it, it is the ultimate chutzpah. And this has been pointed out by many. You're speaking to God as you. Even in a high school setting, you know, usually you call your Rebbe in third person. Can I get Rebbe a drink? I'm reminded during the summer, so I I was teaching different groups of guys, and there was one group. Guys were in their young 20s, 22, 23. So one person asked me the question in third person, something about, you know, how does it really like camp so far? And the other guy chimed in, and he's like, one second, one second. This is ridiculous. Why are you calling him in the third person? Okay? For crying out loud. Can't you just be normal, right? He's a human being. Just say you. You okay with that, Rabbi? Right? <laughs> so we had this ongoing joke that I would only allow him to call me your majesty. <laughs> but it's a strange thing. Oftentimes we'll refer to a Rebbe in third person. But to God, the Ain Sof, the Creator, you, you are the source of bracha. That's exactly the understanding of Hevel, and that's truth. Because there's a relationship. Because I know you love me more than anything in the world. I know you care about the way I feel. I know my emotions make a difference in my service of you. I don't have to be distant. I could say, Baruch Atah Hashem, even though you're Hashem, even though I can never, never get close to grasping you, but you're still you and I'm me. Right? We have that, that Kesher. In the Yom Kippur Shachris, we have an amazing poem. Some of these poems in Yom Kippur, you just, every line is so packed, it's so rich. Ratzitza Shevach, we say, You, God, desire praise. May homi beregish, from those who pray with regish, with emotion. Ratzitza Shevach, and who do you desire praise from? Mimiuta Yamim, from people of limited lifespans, people who are just here today and gone tomorrow. Nishuye Tova, people who have forgotten goodness. Soveya Roges, you're asking praise. You want praise from someone who's filled with wrath. With all of my bad midos, you want me to daven to you. Agume Nefesh, people who are grieved, people who are downtrodden. Vehi Kivodecha, and this is your glory. This is your glory. You, you think about it, doesn't make any sense. Right? You have the two and a half year old. Right? Blown away from how much you know. Right? You, you, you know the entire ABCs by heart? Right? Wow, you must be brilliant. It's unbelievable. I remember myself when I was first, I was learning before going into ninth grade. And that was the first time I was really learning, getting into Chomish and other Limudim. So my teacher, Rabbi David Grumman, one of the, uh, the greatest men who walked the planet. So remember, it was time for Mincha, and we davened together there in the Los Angeles Kolo. And I had my art scroll sitter, and I was davening. And I noticed he was davening by heart. And at that moment, I knew he was the Godel Hador. Right? He was the greatest man of the generation. He knows the entire Shemona Esrei by heart. 
So based on your level of comprehension, things that are a little bit above you seem like they're unbelievable. So for us to stand here, hakel, hagado, it's a bizayon. You're disrespecting God, it's a chutzpah. But we say, vehi kevodecha, no. This is my glory, says HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Because I need your praise, trust me. But I want you. I want you to be thriving. I want you to break free of the fog. There's an amazing analogy given by the Ruach Haim, Ruchaim Haim in his commentary to Perki Avos, which I think really puts this into perspective. The Mishnah tells us that we should not serve Hashem al-menas l'kabal pras, in order to get reward. But he's bothered by the issue, isn't that the whole purpose of creation? God made us, right, according to what we know to be true. Olam chesed yabane, we're here that Hashem should bestow good, and the mitzvos are the vehicle to get there. So why can't I have in mind, I'm doing this to get closer to Hashem, because that's the ultimate pleasure, that's what Hashem wants. Why is that a lower level service of God? So explains Rechaim Velazhin. So the truth is, that could be the highest level of serving God. But it depends why. Why do I want to get reward? If I want to get schar, I want to get eternity, I want to get closeness, because I know that's what Hashem wants. Hashem wants my best. And I just want to bring Hashem that nachas, so to speak. And you can't get much higher than that. The Mishnah is saying, don't do it just to get the good stuff, if that's your end goal. But if I'm doing it to bring Hashem Nachas, because the only thing Hashem wants is He wants me to thrive. And that's my intention? You can't get better than that. When your parents are asking you to please finish the broccoli, but Ma, I really have no interest in broccoli. It's harder to do. Your parent says, you know what, you do need some iron, and I made you this beautiful 16-ounce ribeye steak. Would you mind eating it? You know, Dad, for you, I'll do anything. Okay, I'll even take two. So the question is, why am I eating it? It might taste delicious, and hopefully I'll enjoy it, and it might be good for me, depending on the latest study about red meat. But assuming, at least at this point, it could be somewhat healthy, Am I doing it because it tastes good and it's healthy? Or am I doing it because I know every bite of this steak is bringing my father nachas? Right? That's doing a vodas Hashem. Leman lekabel pras. Almenas lekabel pras. I'm doing this to get reward, but not because I want it. I want you to be happy. And your happiness comes from me steiging, from me thriving, from me breaking out of that fog. I want to end with a letter, a letter that Rav Kook writes to his son. Rav Tzvi Yehuda. Young Tzvi Yehuda at the time, I think, was only 14 years old, and he was learning in yeshiva, so his great father, Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Kuk, writes to his son, he says, Bani, my precious, my beloved son, Baruch Shem, Baruch Shem, Shem, Asher Zechini Lekabel Mimcha Michtav, Kosov Betaras Levav, I was so happy to receive the letter that you wrote with purity of heart and with the simcha of Torah. And my hope for you is that you'll bring to fruition all of your wonderful thoughts to continue learning Torah, to be engaged in Torah study. 
But do me a favor. Don't waste one day without learning Musr, without learning something that will inspire you. Kedei, for what purpose? Why do you have to stay inspired? In order to keep the simcha in your service of Hashem and your learning of Torah with a feeling of love, because if you could be engaged in Torah and mitzvot with the hargasha, with emotion, there's nothing greater than that. Kain would say, that's worthless. Who cares about your emotion? But Hevel would say, it's all about the emotion. Rachman Aliba boy, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants my heart. And then listen to how he ends the letter. You would assume somebody, the stature of Cook, who was a mystic of, of proportions we can't fathom, he ends off with giving a bracha, with giving some kind of Kabbalistic chant. What does he say? Kosum no lano beniyakari, please, my precious son, continue to write us, mikol prate anhaga, of all the details of your life. Mamish leprate proteos. Really, all the little tiny things. You have no idea what it means to us, to your mother and me, to be involved with all of your things going on. You're going to sleep, you're getting up. What time do you eat breakfast? And what do you usually have for breakfast? We want to know these things. Cornflakes. Right, frosted frakes, what, what, what do you do? When do you have lunch? When do you have dinner? What do you have? Do you like shawarma? Let me know. When do you go to sleep at night? And I hope you say Kriyashma, by the way. And when do you get up in the morning? And where, where's your dorm room? And where in the dorm do you sleep? Do you sleep by the window? Because you know it could be very cold in Yerushalayim in the winter. Please keep on writing us, because we love you so much. Why did Rav Cook care about where his son was sleeping, what he was eating for breakfast? Do you know the, the, the amount that this man had on his shoulders? He was carrying Klal Yisrael on his shoulders, the amount of Asik and Tirda and Hassel and Agmas Nefesh that he had to go through on a daily basis, being misunderstood by many, being ridiculed by others, and having to try to save lives in the meantime. Why does he care about where his son's sleeping? Because he cares about his son. Why does he care about his son's emotions? Because he cares about his son. This philosophy of Hevel is not only the, the Das Torah, right, the correct approach in our worldview, but when it comes to any level of inspiration that we're trying to, to uplift others, if it's as parents or educators, if we could emulate Hashem in this way, where we make it as clear as possible to anyone we're trying to influence. It's not about me. When you don't listen to the rules of the house, I'm not going to get angry because you offended me. When you don't follow the principles that we've set forth in the classroom, it's not going to bother me because now it's a slight to my ego. I'm not going to get in a power struggle with you because I have to prove that I'm more in control than you are to emulate a Kaddish Baruch Hu in a way where really anything you say or do will slide right off me. You want to call me all the bad names in the world? Go for it. I don't care. Right? I love you so incredibly much. The reason why I care is because I care about you. The reason why I don't want this kind of behavior and I want to be Madrichu in the right path is because I love you more than words. 
should be Zoha, we should have the ability and the clarity to emulate the way of Hevel, to realize that Cain was not that far off, but he didn't get the whole picture. Emotions count. Emotions can be the main point of our Vodas Hashem. Rahmana, Liba, boy, Hashem wants our heart. Let's go ahead.